You cannot understand America without understanding the South. It's the fastest growing, youngest, and most diverse part of the country. And Southerners are changing the music we listen to, the movies we watch, the food we eat, and the stories we share. I'm John Hammontree, host of The Reckon Interview, and each week I sit down and talk with some of the South's most interesting thinkers and creators. We talk about how this place shaped them and how they're reshaping the South. So go ahead and subscribe to The Reckon Interview, available wherever you get your podcasts. For AL.com, I'm Ben Flanagan. This is Outbreak Alabama, stories from a pandemic. As the novel coronavirus wreaks havoc in Alabama and across the world, these are the stories of those seeking to survive the disease and its economic strain. No reason people can't go out. Just got to be really careful and, and really thoughtful about crowds and about density in some of these areas. Today we hear from Dr. Jeannie Marazzo, the director of the Division of Infectious Diseases at the University of Alabama at Birmingham School of Medicine. Dr. Marazzo is also part of the coronavirus task force that Alabama Governor Kay Ivey created in early March. And in April, she joined a task force led by UAB health system experts to develop plans for the University of Alabama system's three campuses to be safe when on-campus uh, instruction resumes. Safer She's home, also provided frequent live updates from UAB press conferences. First, I want to thank every Alabamian, each and every one of you, for doing your part for practicing the guidelines and the personal hygiene and for paying attention to help us combat this awful virus. I know it's been tough on y'all, but y'all really ain't been a picnic for me either. And I so appreciate the personal sacrifices that each of you are making and will continue to make as we get through this situation. Last Friday, Governor Ivey announced a new safer-at-home order, reopening restaurants and bars, gyms, salons, and churches in Alabama that'll go into effect today, Monday, May 11. The new order will remain in place until May 22nd. However, today, I'm expanding this order and the list of what reopens under the safer-at-home order. So starting this Monday, May 11th, this order is amended with expanded openings that will go into effect during the next phase of safely reopening Alabama and will continue until May 22nd. I spoke to Dr. Marazzo on Sunday afternoon after she'd worked rounds at UAB earlier that day. We discussed what the new Safer at Home order means for Alabama where the state now stands on testing, and why she can see a light at the end of the tunnel. According to the Alabama Department of Public Health, as of today, May 10th, there are 9,736 confirmed cases with 393 deaths, and there have also been nearly 127,000 total tests. And one thing that we keep hearing nationally is that to reopen the country, we would need to test X number of people per day. And I I think there remains a little confusion as to why we don't have the capacity to do that by now. So I'm just curious, in terms of Alabama, how far have we come in this state with testing and and what's left to be done? Yeah, these are great questions. Um, I think there's a ton of confusion about the amount of tests that you really need to do to get a handle on what the true denominator of the burden of infection is. And there are a couple of issues with why we're not quite there yet. I think, first of all, 
we have tested primarily in parts of the state, and this is true, I think, throughout most of the country, where people have access to testing centers and we can set up testing centers or we have facilities that can incorporate testing pretty easily, right? So places that have hospitals, um, places that have large medical facilities of some kind, and basically large cities. So if you look at the map of cases by county in Alabama, you know, that pretty much tallies with um, Huntsville, Birmingham, Montgomery, and Mobile and the, and the counties closest to those. So that says to me that when you have selective testing, you probably are going to test more positives or detect more positives in those sites. When you look at some of our least or less populated counties, the numbers of tests done at those counties are sometimes very, very, very small. Um, for example, you know, maybe in the hundreds as opposed to in the thousands, which is what we're talking about at the bigger areas. So that gets to the question of are we selectively testing people who might be more likely to have it, who might not? So it's not necessarily the most representative uh, sampling of the group. The second thing is, you know, we don't really know how many people we need to test. I saw a number today that um, suggested that instead of looking at the total number of positives, we should start looking at the number of tests we need to do to detect a single positive. Because <laughs> you can see that number is going down in New York right now they have to test about seven people to get a positive. And in the height of their challenges, it was they had to test about two people to get a positive. So, you know, it's another way of looking at it, and I think it's another way that we can try to interpret this. That says, you know, we've been testing more every single day. Challenges that we are also detecting more, right, every day. So we had a peak day this week of about 390 infections, I think, and if you look at overall where we're at, our prevalence of positives every time or the percent positive every day has never been below 5%. Um, you know, at, at, at our peak in the middle of April, it was almost 18%. But again, that's because we were preferentially testing people who were coming in probably with symptoms. Um, so the more you test in people who don't have symptoms, the more negatives there are going to be, the more you get out to the general population, we hope the more negatives there are going to be. That said, you know, when you're still detecting 7 or 8% of infections, was where, which is where we're at right now, that's still a decent burden. Right before the weekend, you said that you didn't feel good about the trends that are occurring right now in Alabama and, and that all the gains that we've made in the last two months of extreme sacrifice could be lost. And I wonder, with the governor's new order, with things opening back up, even using the health guidelines mentioned in the order, is reopening the state a mistake right now? Well, I think it's a not a yes or no question, right? Um, it is, people are utterly devastated economically, and as I said in our press conference on Friday, it's not just uh, retail businesses, it's, it's also our hospital facilities. You know, we're laying people off, we're laying healthcare workers off, we're laying researchers off. We're all taking pay cuts because of the reduced burden of, of care that we've, we've been doing with the closures. So I know people are going to have it a lot worse than we are, economically speaking. And when you look at the number of people going on unemployment, I do think we need to do something. What I would like to see is 
with the number of new cases continuing to climb cumulatively, right? We, we have not seen what that metric that even the White House put forth, which was ideally a decline in the number of new cases for 14 days. We are not there yet. And so that says to me, there's still a substantial burden of community transmission going on. And if people don't take that threat seriously, by being careful when they go out to these establishments, then we could see not just this relatively stable, sort of slowly increasing number of new cases, but we could see another spike like we were starting to see in April, right? When we were having quite a high number of positive tests per day, around 20%. I think the reason we headed things off is because we got very strict, particularly in our biggest cities. And I'm firmly convinced it's the only reason at UAB Hospital we've been able to maintain a steady census of people. We've had, I think you know this, Benjamin, between 50 and 60 people with COVID every day for the last probably five weeks, maybe a little bit more. And about half of those people are on ventilators. You can imagine that that doesn't give us a lot of room to to experience um, an increase in cases. We can definitely take care of more people, but it, it doesn't really make us feel really secure that if we did have a big increase like they saw in New York, uh, or they saw in Mobile for that matter, that we would be very confident that it would go well, um, both from the standpoint of comfortably opening up the hospital more to elective procedures and to all the other people who need care for non-COVID stuff, but also because of our personal protective equipment, which still supply remains precarious for that. So I think that's where our anxiety is really ratcheting up. You know, we've seen we've seen that we can control this with this really tough sacrifice that people have made. Now let's try to open things up, but let's do it really cautiously. Let's really let people know that it's a personal responsibility to the community and to the healthcare uh, community because no reason people can't go out. Just got to be really careful and, and really thoughtful about crowds and about density in some of these areas. There's so much information out there about COVID and people are just coming away with a multitude of different answers for the same questions. But I'm just curious, what has been the most common misconception about the disease or transmission that you've heard these last two months? Well, um, probably the biggest one that we had to deal with was the early belief that hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin were great drugs to treat the virus. And that happened to the extent that stocks of those drugs that were being used to treat patients with connective tissue diseases like rheumatoid arthritis or lupus were actually depleted because people were making runs and writing doctors were even writing prescriptions for themselves. And it was a real, I think, um, sign of two things. One was desperation that you know, people were dying and we really didn't know know what to do. And so, you know, in those situations, you kind of tend to want to grab onto something. And two, the power of rumors or sanctions from people in powers of position can really, really take hold. And indeed, they did. There have been now a couple of studies. In fact, one just this week in New England Journal that reported on the experience in Boston with those drugs. And they seem to really have very little effect 
at least in these early studies, for hospitalized patients. So there's a misconception that just because people say something works, um, it does work. Um, that doesn't mean we shouldn't study it carefully, and I think that's where the public needs to understand there's a real place for well-done research. And so we are conducting, and others are conducting, a rigorous trial of those two drugs in the treatment of outpatient COVID, right? So people who aren't sick enough to come to the hospital, and it may actually help those folks. So I think that that has fueled a lot of claims about what does and doesn't work, vitamins, vitamin D, vitamin C. You know, we, we just really don't know. So I, I think that that's a that's probably the biggest one that sticks in my mind because it actually ended up depleting the medications for people who really needed it for their for their rheumatologic diseases. My last one for you: you said you think there is light at the end of the tunnel in regards to development of a vaccine, and that you're trying to widen the tunnel. But we're going to be living with a version of orders like safe at home and other health guidelines until we have a vaccine, and this will obviously take a long time. We're still a long way off, but people seem to really invest a lot of hope into it. Instead of stressing about when a vaccine will be ready and available, what do you recommend people focus on in terms of treatment and taking care of each other until that happens and the light at the end of the tunnel becomes closer and brighter? Yeah, that's a great question. It almost becomes sort of how do you live with fear and anxiety of something that we as a generation have never had to deal with, right? I mean, you know, we've had a lot of scary things happen from natural disasters to terrorism to other health scares, but we've never had anything like this. I think it's a reminder of the importance of physical community. Um, you know, we've become so wired and so used to interacting online and but when it comes down to it, we are humans who really want to be together physically. You know, we want to touch each other. We want to talk to each other. We want to hug each other. And um, in some ways, that makes me feel good because, you know, it's sort of an affirmation that there's still something very special about how we function as a community. Um, I think the key point is to remember we are going to be able to get back to that. You know, it may not look exactly like that in a year but I think once we have a vaccine, um, maybe it's two years, um, we probably are going to get there. In the meantime, you know, we are developing better ways to treat the virus. I, I do believe that the pace of science has been unparalleled in this epidemic. I, I mean, I keep trying to explain to people that we didn't even have the genetic sequence of this virus until January. And we're already talking about, you know, analyzing it mutations, looking at different drug targets, and the vaccine. And so we have like three candidates now for vaccines that are probably going to move forward with serious trials in the United States in the next couple of months. One actually already has. So I think that's really, really important to focus on. And, and the other thing is I, I have just been astonished by the acts of kindness that people have shown. I mean, especially me as a healthcare worker, I, I feel like I'm not even, you know, on the front line in the way that the uh, EMT people are or the respiratory therapists. And yet people have been just incredibly kind, uh, everything from bringing me food to sending me flowers, <laughs> you know, to calling me. And it's just been like, wow. Um, so that kind of restores my faith in humanity a lot. So I think we'll get there. It's just going to take a lot of fortitude. And it is a marathon. That's the other thing. It's, it's, not, a, it's not a sprint. We, we've got to get used to this pace uh, for another year or two. 
Well, Dr. Marazzo, thank you so much for your time and for all that you and your colleagues are doing. And I wish you luck. Yeah, it's my pleasure, Ben. Thanks for the great coverage, too. If you or anyone you know is affected by coronavirus and want to share your story, please email bflanagan at al.com. That's B-F-L-A-N-A-G-A-N at al.com. For all of our coverage on the outbreak and how it continues to impact Alabama, visit al.com slash coronavirus. If you like the show, please rate us and write a review. Thanks for listening.